Hey, this is Mike Foley, part of the podcast team at WCBE, Central Ohio's NPR station, and a proud partner and supporter of Prognosis Ohio. Just like Dan with this podcast, WCBE has been a constant companion for listeners in an uncertain time, providing a mix of news and music with an emphasis on local content. Our fundraiser takes place April 8th through the 16th. Please consider a contribution at wcbe.org. Thanks for supporting Prognosis Ohio and WCBE. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm your host, Dan Skinner. Longtime listeners of the show know that I have a lot of respect, as I'm sure you do, for reporters who cover important issues in health, healthcare, and medicine. We've had quite a few journalists on over the past few years, and I always enjoy hearing them talk about what they're learning, as well as getting them to reflect on their craft. Today, we've got a good one, as I talk with Max Philby, health and medicine reporter for my hometown paper, The Columbus Dispatch. In the conversation, Max and I talk about a range of issues, but we of course spend a lot of time on where we are with the pandemic, vaccinations, and how the process and experience of reporting has changed over the past 12 months or so. I thought it was a pretty good conversation. Max Philby is a reporter covering health and medicine for the Columbus Dispatch. Max covered the state's response to COVID-19 as it unfolded, often breaking news from Governor Mike DeWine's press conferences at the Ohio State House. Max likes to dig through data to find stories and create interactive graphs and other tools to accompany his work, which we're going to be linking to in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com. Prior to joining the dispatch in 2019, Max reported on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and higher education issues for the Dayton Daily News. He's a native Ohioan, originally from Toledo, earning his bachelor's degree in journalism from Bowling Green State University and a certificate in investigative journalism from the New England Center for Investigative Reporting at Boston University. Hey, Max, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. No problem. Happy to be here. So I've been reading your work for some time, um, but when the dispatch included you in their uh, reporter spotlights they've been doing, I jumped at the chance to invite you on the show, not only to talk about your reporting, but also kind of do the meta thing a little bit and talk about you and your reporting and, you know, flip the script a little bit. So uh, it's it's really nice to meet you, um, you know, like we've been doing virtually. Let's jump right in and, you know, I'll, I'll tell listeners, you know, I'll, I'll be including links to all the articles we're going to talk about in the show notes uh, on, on our website, prognosisohio.com and also wcbe.org, you know, so they can do some reading. And I will just say at the outset, and I'm sure I'll say this at the end, we always tell people, you know, support local journalism. If you're in the Columbus area, especially, or in, in Ohio, s- subscribe to the dispatch. I do. Glad to hear that. <laughs> um, it's important. So let's turn to the you know the topic that's on everybody's minds. It's everywhere all around us. Uh, vaccination. You have a piece out just today, um, which is uh, a, a really important one. And I, I want to get to that in a second. But you, you've been doing reporting generally on kind of what I think about as the the double edge of vaccinations, like the logistics of vaccine distribution on the one hand, and hesitancy on the other. There appears, according to your reporting, to be lots of regional variation as well. So I guess I just want to throw you the big question, which is, what have you learned from your reporting about the state's efforts to get vaccinations in arms? Yes. Yeah, so it is definitely, it, it varies across the state. You know, the story that you referenced uh, that I have out today takes a look at this kind of phenomenon that a lot of people are able to drive and get their vaccine if they're willing to. 
potentially hours away. Something that we found is that appointments are filling up in some places like Columbus rather quickly um, and in other parts of the state, not so quickly. Some experts I talked to said that that on one hand may have to do with some distribution issues. Um, potentially more shots are going to some some parts of the state than need to. But the bigger issue could be that potentially, especially in some of these smaller cities and more rural areas of Ohio, there may be more hesitancy to get the COVID-19 vaccine than we originally thought there would be, um, or at, at least far less urgency than there might be in some of the bigger cities. Yeah, at the height of my impatience. So I got my first shot last week and you know, I but I had that one night where I was looking at all these websites of pharmacies and you know Zanesville and uh you know different parts of the state that would require that I drive an hour and a half to 2 hours and I was thinking about like maybe I could stop at this park and do it and then I was thinking but I'm going to have to go back most likely. So like what's that going to look like? But my patience paid off because Franklin County Public Health opened up a new round and I was mm-hmm. able to get in. So it, it paid off a lot, but we're also seeing that kind of dynamic where people from urban centers are going to rural areas. What, what, do, you, what do you owe this to? I mean, in your reporting, when you look at the kind of rural-urban split, is it the standard kind of story about like, we've gone through this incredible political moment and you know, Trump and Biden and the kind of politicization of it, or are there other factors as well? I, you know, I wouldn't doubt that there's there's some of that there, certainly. Um, there pretty much always is these days. Um, you know, I think that in some of the rural areas, obviously, you know, we joke about it, but you're sort of already socially distanced in some of the very rural areas. Perhaps COVID-19 has not impacted, you know, you or your family as much if you live in a rural area, especially because... At first, we saw a lot of these big waves of infections. They were, they were, frankly, they were hitting the big cities like Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati. So, so with that in mind, that's there's probably a good reason. Um, that's probably the reason, rather, that you're seeing less demand in some of these counties. I, I know I looked last Friday. I haven't looked today, but um, you know, Holmes County, I think, which is more a more rural part of the state, they were only at 10% vaccinated, whereas Delaware County, which is just north of Franklin County, uh, was already at like 32%. So, I mean, there's a pretty wide variation here from county to county. Um, The governor has said that as time goes on, he may look at redistributing some of the vaccines uh, to where there's more demand. Um, So I think that'll be interesting once we kind of hit that mark. Uh, Obviously, it just opened up to everybody 16 and up today for the first time in Ohio. Um, So I think this week we're going to see probably some more frustration than we've seen in a while with getting the shots, um, simply because it's opened up to such a big pool of people now. Yeah, we're going to see how the supply-demand thing actually works, right? Like what the other factors are. um, And and certainly um, the idea that there are unfilled appointments in some places is a counter narrative to where we were a month or two ago, which is people's desperation to get the shots. Absolutely. And I I even, um, you know, myself, even I I actually, you know, Dayton, Ohio is not necessarily a rural part of the state, but I actually last week just drove all the way to Dayton to get my first, first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Um, you know, and it's about an hour and a half from where I live here in Columbus, but I'll tell you what, I was happy to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You've also written about the various websites for getting appointments, and 
um, you know, finding out where the availability is. You did a, a really interesting piece on vaccinateoh.org, um, which was created by a local group, Can't Stop Ohio. It was kind of a clearinghouse for figuring out you know, wh- where these appointments were. But also on Twitter and elsewhere, we've seen this conversation about what's going on with the state website. You know, uh, the state website kind of reminds me a little bit of the healthcare.gov conversations from a while ago of just watching, you know, what watching this big promised website not quite work. Although, I, and I don't know if, even know if, if we're making progress. So is that still a conversation? Is that is there still hope that there's going to be a kind of more of a role for the state? Because right now we have some really great examples like Franklin County Public Health and Columbus Public Health, but the state level uh, isn't really doing that coordinating piece yet. Yeah, so I think that's been a big complaint this throughout this whole process, right? It's it's like we knew these vaccines were coming. Why wasn't there some sort of really simple, easy way where you could just go to one spot and sign up and kind of be done with it? Um, you know, four, four or five months into the vaccine rollout, there's still not really one statewide website where you can just go to and sign up. Um, even the ones that do exist, like like you had mentioned, there's this new vaccinateoh.org, um, which kind of tries to solve some of the headaches of scheduling a vaccine. Even when you can find appointments on there, it kicks you to the provider's website to actually set up an appointment to get a shot. So, you, you know, I think that continues to be a frustration. I'm sure it's sort of one of those lessons learned from the rollout. Uh, I have seen there there are a few different parts of the state, like Lucas County up near Toledo, for instance, um, where I'm originally from. Um, my family members told me about uh, the way the websites worked up there to, to sign up for vaccines. And they had one, you know, centralized hub where you literally could actually book your appointment for any of the shot providers on this one website. And I was surprised we didn't see something more like that statewide, but I think, you know, we got started on that idea sort of after the vaccine rolled out and everybody already had all their different websites and platforms and stuff. And it becomes really hard to integrate that harder than you would think. Yeah. I had this one night where I was at my dining room table, glass of wine and like, 50 tabs open on my browser, you know, just like checking this place and this place and this place and this pharmacy and this other place and seeing what was out there. And it was quite amazing, you know, and I think there were a lot of people like that, um, especially early on who, you know, and, and, and again, I mentioned that patients really paid off because ultimately I think the capacity is starting to free up. And right now the problem where we, we may even be getting to a tipping point where the question is how we deal with folks who are hesitant and and have those broader public health conversations. Like, in other words, the supply might not be the big issue right now. Yeah, I think definitely. I think we're days, if not weeks away, probably from the supply not being the big issue. I think we're getting around half a million doses a week starting this week. So pretty soon we'll probably be to that point, like you were saying, where we'll have to go out and try to find people to get the vaccine rather than, you know, appointments just filling up at the snap of a finger. So in a, in a kind of sign of where we are, you know, more people are starting to move around. We're talking about travel again. And you you reported with Eric Legata. Did I get his name right? Is that yep. right? That's correct. Yeah. On monitoring of individuals who may have been exposed to Ebola, right? So just a, a few months back, I, I talked with uh, the former director of the Ohio Department of Health, Rick Hodges, and we we talked about the 2014 Ebola situation a little bit and kind of lessons learned and processing how we were doing with COVID. 
it's been my sense, at least here in Franklin County, that the local health departments have, have done a really good job kind of, you know, walking and chewing gum, multitasking, uh, doing the day-to-day things that they do as health departments, even while they've been really stretched thin with COVID-19. But but I wonder, I mean, as we're starting to talk about this possibility, the scare that we have right now, that um, there might have been some Ebola exposure, um, do you get our sense, a sense that we are ready for those kinds of, the next big thing? Not that we want to necessarily scare people by, but there's another thing coming at some point, and we've just gone through a an extraordinary experience where hopefully we've learned something. So as you're turning some of your work to thinking about Ebola, while we're still in the middle of a a COVID-19 pandemic, how do you put those pieces together and how are you processing even having that conversation? Yeah, no, definitely. So, um, right. So when I got the call that there were over 40 people in Ohio being monitored for Ebola, I think I got a call from my editor last week, uh, that she had seen something about it. My first, uh, you know, reaction was what the, you know, bleep. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, yeah, you're right. It's like, how can we even start to think about something like that when we're still in the midst of this, you know, once in a century global pandemic? Um, you, you know, I talk to a lot and a lot of people in public health, um, and healthcare all the time. And, and especially in the public health side, they will, you know, they'll tell you they're stretched thin. Um, there are not enough people um, working in public health. They don't have enough funding necessarily. And this isn't just in Ohio or locally. It's it's a national problem. You know, the governor has said several times that one of the lessons learned from the pandemic is that we need to invest more in public health. Yeah. Um, obviously, on the healthcare side, things have improved uh, simply because the patient volume is down from the winter peak here in Ohio. Uh, for COVID. But yeah, no, you know, uh, on the Ebola front, it's definitely a frightening thing when you're in the middle of what we're in right now. And then you see this virus, you see news about this virus that, frankly, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it was not on my radar, you know, as a reporter, let alone probably the general public's. Um, So it's definitely a little frightening. Um, Luckily for us, Ebola does not spread like COVID spreads. (laughs) Right. It's much harder to infect people with Ebola. And it seems like, you know, for now, it is a small group of people who were, you know, in parts of remote, remote parts of Africa, where there is this outbreak ongoing there. Um, They're being monitored for 21 days, and hopefully nobody shows any symptoms. But you mentioned, you know, the governor's comments about funding public health. And obviously, we have the other movement happening at the state house with resistance and, and a, a dialing back of the governors and the the uh, director of the Ohio Department of Health's powers during emergency situations like this. I mean, it may be that what that that's one of the lessons we've learned actually from this, which would be, in my view, a strange lesson to learn. Do you envision, you know, even like something like Ebola, you know, and hopefully it doesn't come to pass. Hopefully, it's no more than a blip or kind of like what it was in twenty fourteen. Is there a way to leverage this? Do you think? Do you see people mobilizing to leverage this to actually have conversations about funding these things and to preparing better? Yeah, you know, I I think a lot of a lot of people in public health would tell you they're hopeful that at the end of the day this will yield increased funding, increased research, increased you know everything. Essentially, um, time will tell if that actually pans out after the pandemic. Um, you know, you know I, I, we talk a lot about what is the post-pandemic world going to look like. Um, and the way I've thought about it a lot, even though in, in some ways, you know, the pandemic may have a longer and bigger impact than, say, 
you know, something like the terrorist attacks of September 11th, um, simply because it stretched on for a year and happened in every single state instead of just a few. But, you know, it, look at look after 9-11, you know, look how much changed at airports and with travel and immigration and everything. I expect we're going to probably see a lot of changes um, happen post-pandemic. A lot of things probably will never go back. And I, I would assume that we'll probably see, um, you know, more resources directed toward public health, at least for the time being. I, I do think that, you know something that's uniquely American is we're able to forget things rather quickly at the same time, um, especially yeah. when things get back to normal. So there's definitely always that possibility that as things return to normal, we kind of all put it behind us and say, well, let's hope that doesn't happen again for another hundred years. But most researchers and public health experts would tell you they hope the opposite happens that, that they get more in the future. Yeah, status quo ante is not always the best place to end up after mm-hmm. you know a, a situation like this. You also wrote a, a piece that I really loved uh, on March twenty second, and you were reflecting on um, when different folks in our state started to process the full scope of this thing of this pandemic, and you know you. Um, Talk about the the governor's wife, uh, Fran DeWine, quite a bit, and that is really is really interesting. You know, if I go back to episodes fr- of this show from February, March, April, um, you know, those early months, there's a similar process of reckoning as well. I mean, probably some embarrassing moments too. We were all kind of fumbling around, like masks, no masks, social distancing. What are we doing? When do we not go to the office anymore? Um, and we were working through that. But I, I want to throw that question back to you to start. I mean, so what was your own process as a journalist? I mean, w- w- did you see it right away too, uh, because you were talking to people in health and healthcare around the state and medicine, or did you have your own kind of like process of realizing, oh, oh man, this is this is way bigger than I knew? Yeah. So, so for myself, like a lot of the people I talked to, um, you know, it didn't fully hit me all at once. I actually, um, in February, probably like three or four weeks before, um, everything really started shutting down. I was actually on, um, a trip at a reporting conference in Florida. And I remember being down there and reading things about COVID and stuff. And, you know, I, I came home and there, you know, we were starting to talk more like, well, what if this really like hits the fan here in the next few weeks? And um, I actually have a good friend who's also a reporter who often reminds me that a few weeks before things started shutting down and before the, you know, the Arnold Sports Festival here in Columbus um, had restrictions put on it for spectators. Which seemed huge, by the way. I mean, that was oh, like, yeah. I mean, you would have thought the world ended when the Arnold was shut down, right? It's kind of <laughs> right, laughable right. It, now it, in it, hindsight. Absolutely. It's it's almost funny to, to look back on and think how big of a deal that was at the time. But no, I, one of my close friends who's a journalist often reminds me that a few weeks before all that happened, um, you know, we were sitting at a bar grabbing some dinner and a beer and I made the comment, you know, I don't know, man, I'm starting to feel like this is going to be kind of serious. I, I'm starting to get that <laughs> feeling that this is not like, you know, the Zika virus or, you know, past yeah. scares that we had had. Um, and at the time he was like, nah, you know, you're crazy. That's not going to happen. And of course, just a few weeks later, something like three weeks later, you know, restaurants and bars were shutting down and we couldn't even go to them anymore. 
it, there were definitely times in the early stages of the pandemic for myself where I thought, you know, like everybody, because there's this learning curve. We didn't really know what we were dealing with here. Nobody's ever really dealt, nobody alive really has ever dealt with anything quite like this where I thought, all right, so, you know, two, three, four, five weeks, you know, we'll be doing this lockdown thing and then, you know, we'll have it under control and things will get back to normal. And here we are a year later. <laughs> so it's, it definitely kind of sunk in on and off at times, but it took probably a while for it to really hit me that things were not going right back to normal. Um, I probably didn't fully reach that point until April, honestly, even though I was reporting on it every day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, healthcare journalists have done amazing work during the pandemic. I, I have a new list of favorite writers now, you know, nationally and, and locally. I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on kind of how journalism did, how healthcare journalism did generally. I mean, just like a snapshot of adapting to this moment and getting the right asking the right questions, getting the right scoops, things like that. Well, so obviously I'm a little biased because I'm a healthcare reporter myself. Sure. Um, yeah, please, no, please tell me, tell me how bad healthcare reporters did. No, right, right. No, but um, no, I mean, you know, it, it's, it, I am impressed at least at times um, that the media or, you know, I shouldn't use that phrase, the, the press, I guess, has, has done a good job at, you know, st- trying to understand um, infectious disease. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, myself, I actually, I joined the Columbus Dispatch in November of 2019 as their healthcare reporter. I hadn't really done a lot of extensive healthcare reporting before then. I'd done some um, in yeah. previous roles, just helping out. But, you know, so I was learning on the fly too. Um, I didn't know, you know, what an r was. I think I'd maybe seen it mentioned in a movie before. <laughs> um <laughs> But no, I I think it's done a pretty good job. Obviously, you know, no one's perfect. So, you know, there there are times where I think we've maybe focused a little too much on, you know, oh, cases are increasing or cases are down. Well, you know, in in a world where testing is not universal and easy to get, you know, the number of cases maybe doesn't, I don't want to say doesn't matter as much, but the implications of them. Um, maybe aren't as real as if, you know, everybody could go get tested every day if they wanted to. So I think we've done, I think journalism in general has done a good job at getting their arms around it, especially at this point. Um, you know, early on, like I said, obviously there was a learning curve, but I think we've, we've stuck the mark. We have to come out of this with some lessons learned, right? So, you know, moving forward, I guess, have you developed any new uh techniques i mean in a way from the, the all the remote re- recording you're doing and you're not spending much time in a, a typical newsroom in fact lots of newsrooms have shut down possibly permanently around the country right we've seen this kind of crazy contraction of the industry right at a time when we need it more than ever the plane dealer went through some really difficult times right during the middle of, of covid um, we've seen kind of a shift of the landscape of, of journalism and healthcare journalism's right in the middle of that so I, I guess uh, moving forward, I mean, if there is, um, aside from people subscribing to newspapers and supporting it and understanding the value of, uh, of, of, of healthcare journalism, what do you hope moving forward, you know, we can learn from this? I mean, how, how next time can we tell the story better, especially when you think about science, right? I mean, that's been a big mm-hmm. piece of this is that 
you might have all this information as a healthcare journalist, me as a health policy person, hopefully we talk to each other, right? But then there's this like translational work that happens in terms of getting people to understand this thing that like is, a, is, is, is in progress, right? It's like totally in motion and you're trying to make sense of it in real time. No, that's a great question. Something, and, and you know, something I think I would have done differently if I could go back in time. And this was obviously, you know, to an extent, we didn't know it at the time, but is this kind of notion, like you said, that this is all happening in real time. We're seeing science play out in real time when typically it happens behind the scenes. And frankly, not many, not, not many people in the general public pay attention to it when that's happening, but that I think I would have done a better job or, or have tried to of explaining that, listen, this is what we think. We don't, the fact is that we don't know. Um, I think there's been a lot of consternation and stuff around the fact that, you know, what something people often point to, and you kind of mentioned earlier is that, when this whole thing started, we were actually told, like, you probably don't need to wear a mask. You're probably good. Um, in fact, we were we actually have something of a shortage of masks right now um, in hospitals and stuff. So, you know, if you were to wear a mask, it'd probably be unnecessary and it would probably take away from the people who really need it in hospitals. Well, you know, flash forward a few months and we know that to be not true at all. In fact, wearing masks really helps slow the spread of the virus. And yeah. I, we've had a statewide mask mandate in Ohio, you know, since, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, it was probably May or June, I think, when that was first put in place. So, you know, things happen in real time. We learn new things every day, especially with a virus that we've never seen before. Um, and people need to understand that, that the fact the facts themselves are changing on a day-to-day yeah. basis. Um, you know, go, going forward, you know, the news business, obviously we've had to, reinvent ourselves before when it came to the internet and and we've sort of had to you know completely adapt to working from home and working remotely which if you've ever been in a newsroom you know there's a lot of value there that comes with being able to bounce ideas off people or work together on projects and stories that is just harder to do over video chat (laughs) um yeah, imagine all the president's men, but uh, you know, over Zoom, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No kidding. Woodward or Bernstein, like you know, FaceTiming each other to. Uh, hey, hey, Woodward, you got to turn your mic on. I can't hear you. I can't hear you. <laughs> right. You're, right. You're breaking up. Yeah. Somebody will do a great YouTube spoof of that one of these days. Now that that sounds perfect, but um, so you know, I I don't know necessarily when we'll all be heading back to the newsroom. Certainly, there's lots of talk about when that might be. Um, I'm optimistic it could be this summer or this fall. I am, you know, even though I'm used to working from home now, and there's obviously some conveniences that come with working from home. You could, you know, pop a load of laundry in in between phone interviews. But, um, but you know, I'm looking forward to getting back to our newsroom um, just to be able to have that kind of collaboration and discussion with my colleagues who who know what they're doing and are great at their jobs. Well, you've got great colleagues, um, and that's a huge piece of it. We've talked to some of them on the show here, and hopefully we'll keep doing that more. Uh, but you know, I appreciate you taking some time to just give some context and some of the reporting you've been doing. We'll be sharing out these articles um, just to you know amplify to the extent that we can. But more than that, you know, we're going to keep reading you, and um, I appreciate the work you do in this community. I, I've said it, and it sounds a little bit like fanboyish, but I don't care which is I, I don't know what we would do without healthcare reporters in this area. And I, and I live in fear of them going away. <laughs> and, you know, and so uh, I appreciate the work you do and we got to keep fighting to make sure that uh, 
journalism remains strong. So thanks very much, Max. Absolutely. Thanks, Dan. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire McGee. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at at Prognosis Ohio. As always, we encourage you to reach out with your suggestions and your feedback, and you'll find links on our website to do just that. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody, and be well. <laughs>